You're listening to the Fellowship on Broadway podcast from First Baptist Nashville. I'm glad you're here today. Last Sunday, um, we, we looked at the conversion of Saul in Acts chapter 9 and um, about how God transformed Saul's life in, in such a major way that he went from being the single greatest persecutor of Christians of his day to one of the most influential followers of Christ of all time. And, and it was a really powerful morning for me, and I, I heard from many of you as well. And, and the application was this, what, what do our lives proclaim? Asking that question. What do our lives proclaim? And have we fully surrendered our lives to Jesus? And and these are powerful questions to consider, and, and so if you missed last week's message, I want to encourage you to, to seek it out. We have a, a podcast. If you have an iPhone, you can go to the podcast app and type in Fellowship on Broadway. If you uh, go to our church website, nationalfirst.org, you can find all of the sermons on there. But I, I think it's worth just saying, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a good word to, to think about in this season. And a lot of the themes that we're going to look at today kind of reflect back on that. Um, Last week, I forgot to tell you that, uh, what your homework was. I've told you you're going to have homework in this series, and your homework was that I wanted you to read the rest of, of chapter 9 and then chapters 10 and 11, because today we're in chapter 12. Um, and so Saul, who, who began going by Paul, that's not, it's not a name change to Paul. Paul was just his Greek name, which he went by, and we, we read that later in Acts. I told you that he was a leading voice in the movement that brought this, this faith in Jesus to the Gentiles, the the non-Jewish people around the world, which is a huge deal because the Jewish um, religious people were the chosen people of God. That's who the Jews were. And suddenly this thing was wide open to everyone. And that, that, that's an enormous deal. And it, it, it has direct implications to you and I being grafted into this thing as well. And, and it doesn't, it's not just Paul who was all about that. And, and Peter, who was like the leading voice of the movement um, right after when the church was getting started all throughout Acts so far, he gets in on that action too with the Gentiles. And that's really what chapters 10 and 11 focus on is what happened when Peter took the gospel to the house of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. The one chapter tells us what happened and Peter's dream and then going to see Cornelius and the next one he goes back to the apostles and the followers of Jesus and they're like mad at him because what, what are you doing? And he explains everything that happened and it's, it's this gospel that's spreading, it's spreading out. And similarly, at the end of chapter 11, we're told about some followers of Jesus who, remember when, when Stephen was killed, when he was martyred and, and Saul started persecuting the, the Christians in Jerusalem, they started to spread out into Judea and Samaria and Many of those people went to a place called Antioch, which is in modern-day Syria. And the very end of chapter 11 talks about how the gospel began to flourish amongst the Gentiles in Antioch. And, and that's where uh, it was really the first like multi-ethnic group of, of believers, and that's where the church was. It says that in um, chapter 11, verse 26, that this is the place where the, the word Christians was first used, was in Antioch almost 2,000 years ago. Um, and it's also where Paul kind of re-enters the story. He and this guy named Barnabas team up to lead this movement in Antioch that's kind of, kind of blowing up. So things are going well. After, after Saul's conversion, which up to that we talked about how there's all this tension that's building and things are happening and, and, and the, the church is getting oppressed. But then after the conversion of Saul, we get several chapters in a row of just things are booming. People are being reached. It's spreading out to the Gentiles and not, not only to Cornelius. It, the, the fact that a Roman centurion is becoming a Christ follower is really big when you think about Rome and, and Jewish relations and how all of that's happening. Um, and, and, 
And really, we don't have any more of that tension. It starts to fade for a little while. And we're thinking, hey, everything's going well. It feels like the movement's rolling along. Exciting things are going to happen. And just like last week, we saw the words, but Saul, the beginning of chapter 12 changes course and reminds us that this is not going to be an easy path. So we're going to be reading the first 19 verses of chapter 12 in Acts, starting with Acts 12, 1 through 5. About that time... Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is the seven days following Passover. And when he had seized him, that's Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So the story now is back in Jerusalem, and it's Passover, which should get our attention. Remember, Passover is this really important holiday for the Jewish people, and so we hear that it's Passover, and our our ears should perk up. We know that something's happening. This is a a holiday where God typically shows up and does powerful and miraculous things. Now, the King Herod, mentioned in this chapter 12, is Herod Agrippa I. He is the grandson of Herod the Great, who was the Herod who was, who was the king when Jesus was born. He's the great nephew of Herod Antipas, who was reigned during Jesus' life and ministry, the, the Herod that shows up around Jesus' crucifixion. So this is Herod Agrippa I, a younger version of those guys. He was named king of Judea by the Roman Emperor, Emperor Claudius in 41 CE. So we know that this is after that. And he got this job because he had friends in high places. He was a trusted servant of Rome. Remember, Rome rules all of the known world at this point. And the Roman people would raise up leaders or kings of these different provinces that they have. And so Herod was, got the job because he was trusted by Rome, but he was also really popular with the Jewish authorities and the Jewish religious folks back in Jerusalem. So he's kind of playing both sides, and that's why he's a good fit to be the leader, to be the king over Judea at this time. So think about this, this movement that we've been talking about, about Jesus followers, these Christians that are rising up. This is a threat to this Herod in a couple of different ways. First of all, he's he's not going to look good to the Romans if there's any sort of social or political unrest on his watch. It makes him look like an incapable leader. And so from a political side of things, with his Roman authorities, he he doesn't like that these Jesus people are starting to, to cause trouble. And then secondly, they're frustrating to his friends in the Jewish communities, religious Jews, which we've been talking about, the ones that they've been having trouble with all along. It's frustrating to them, and and his relationship with them needs to stay on good terms for them not to be mad and other uprisings starting to happen. So Herod's saying, I've got to do something about this. So he decides to, to flex his muscles and show these Jesus followers who's really in charge. The James that he kills here, that it says in chapter 12, verse 2, is the Apostle James. You know, the the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee. And death by sword would have meant the the typical Roman protocol, a.k.a. off with his head. That's what that meant. One of Jesus' original twelves. And this makes Herod's Jewish friends, who are really frustrated with this Jesus movement, it makes them happy. And he's like, oh, that was a good move, so I'm going to arrest Peter. Do you, do you see how all of this, you see how all of this is building? Not just 
from the beginning of Acts, but even in this chapter, the followers of Jesus initially met opposition early on in Acts from the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the Jewish movement at the temple. And and there was this heightened level of persecution that followed by this young rising star Pharisee named Saul, the death of Stephen, and further persecution. And now the followers of Jesus, it's escalating. Now They're now getting royal treatment. This isn't just the religious leaders. Now the king of Judea, who has power from Rome, he is getting involved. James is one of the original 12. So they, they killed Stephen, who was one of the new guys, one of the new rising leaders of this movement. Now they've killed James, one of the original 12 apostles. And now Peter has been arrested, and he's getting ready to get killed. They've put the guy who is essentially the leader. He is. He is the leader. He's the face of this movement in Jerusalem. Peter is now being put in jail. The official king of the Jews, which is Herod, is coming after those who claim a new king named Jesus. He's he's not going to let this go on any further. He's going to shut this down. And knowing that some weird, powerful, strange things have happened, it says that he has him guarded by what? Four squads of soldiers. They say that five times fast. Four squads of soldiers. Four squads of soldiers. That was funnier than you acted, people. (laughs) What are the Christians doing? They're praying. We're going to lock Peter up. We're going to put four guards around him, and the Christians are praying. We're going to read the next, uh, I guess it would be 14 verses, so so go along with me here. Now, this is Acts 12, 6 through 19. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, that's Peter, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. That means that Peter was tied, he was locked, chained to to two guards on either side of him. They, They chained the soldiers to him. And centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting, a.k.a. his death. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. This is John Mark, who we call Mark, who's going to become a prominent figure in the early church movement, and in fact, the book of Acts as it goes on, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to stay silent, He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. 
And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Because if you lose your prisoner, you get what they had coming to them. Then he, that's Herod, he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. That is Acts 12, verses 6 through 19. Okay, we're going to kind of wrap our minds around this, and then we're going to see how it applies to us. So an angel of the Lord at the prison leads Peter to safety. He thinks it's a dream until he kind of snaps out of this trance that he's in and finds himself free on the, free from the prison on the city streets. He's like, oh, that was real. I'm out. I need to, I need to get out of here. The, the, the part that's so funny is that this Rhoda girl is so excited. She, she hears Peter knocking. She goes and she recognizes his voice. And it's, it's honestly such good comedy in the midst of this intense story, right? Because she's so excited about hearing his voice that she runs to tell everyone instead of letting the fugitive into safety. And she's telling everybody, and they're like, she's a little girl, she's crazy, you don't know what you're talking about. And she persists. She's like, no, I'm serious. And so they're like, it must be his angel. They, they either thought it was a guardian angel of Peter's, or it's possible that they thought Peter had already been killed, and that it was like his angel coming back from the dead or whatever to talk to them. Now, A, if you thought it was an angel, a guardian angel, or the angel of Peter himself, would you not have wanted to go check it out? But they're just saying, hey, be quiet. But then Peter keeps knocking and they realize something's going on and they go and they check and it's him and he explains to them what happens. And then it says he sneaks away to an unknown location. Can we say Jesus safe house? That's what's happening here. It says later Herod can't find him. Peter goes to to sneak away because he knows that his life is in danger if they find him. His mention in this text of telling James and the brothers That's not just some random thing. James is not the James that was beheaded earlier in the story, but it's James, the brother of Jesus, who has, during this time, become a pretty uh, prominent leader in this movement. And and Peter's basically saying James is now going to be in charge, which he does. James becomes the leader of of the Jesus movement in Jerusalem. And, And in fact, Peter, we only see him one more time in the book of Acts. He shows up at this Jerusalem council very briefly in chapter 15. We know, and he's eventually going to go to Antioch and Rome, but this is kind of the end of the road for Peter in terms of, of our focus in Acts. So what's going on here? Well, this, this, this is a pretty powerful story. I mean, this is a prison escape. We talked at the very beginning of this. There's going to be shipwrecks. There's going to be prison escapes. There's going to be God showing up, angels, powerful things are happening. So what are we supposed to, to take from this? I think when we, when we place these verses about the prison escape in the context of that beginning section about what we described about Herod and and the climate in Jerusalem at that time, um, it becomes clear that God is doing something incredible. He is showing up in order that Peter, the, the chief representative of Jesus at this time, in order that Peter can be vindicated. He can be freed. Herod looks like a fool. He, he sulks off to Caesarea, and then Luke, I, I love Luke, because there's six more verses in chapter 12 in which Luke tells us how Herod died, an untimely death. And then immediately after telling us about this untimely death, these are the words that follow. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Take that, Herod. Right? Herod says, I'm in charge, I'm the king, this is my spot, you people are talking about a new king, and this is not going to fly. I got James, now I'm getting Peter, this thing is over. But then God shows up, he sets Peter free, 
I love, there's a summary, I was reading this book by N.T. Wright about Acts, and this is a summary about chapter 12 from this New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright. As the first half of the book comes to a close, because remember it's three sections, but this is really about the halfway point. We're getting ready in chapter 13 to do the, the ends of the earth section of Acts. As the first half of the book comes to a close, the believers in Jerusalem have been announcing Jesus as the rightful Messiah, King of the Jews. The present king of the Jews, that's Herod, takes umbrage and tries to stop it. But the grace of God and the prayers of the church have prevailed. And we can take it that the true king is vindicated against the sham. When all hope seems lost, when the odds are against them, when everything looks like it's about to be stopped, God does something miraculous and unexpected to show who he really is. And he's done it over and over again, hasn't he? Early on, we see twice that Peter gets arrested by the Sanhedrin and they put him on trial and they're mad at him, but God keeps showing up. One time he showed up in the form of a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who he used them. And then they start getting persecuted and killed and this guy named Saul is rising up, but then Jesus steps into Saul's life on the road to Damascus and totally flips his world around. He shows up. Now uh, James is killed, Peter is arrested. It looks like everything is getting shut down, but God shows up, he frees a miraculous prison escape to say, this is who I am. I am the king. I'm in charge. Have you ever experienced anything like that in your life? Where all hope seems lost, where you're not sure how you're going to get through it, but then God's grace meets you where you're at? This is, I brought a photo with me. This is a photo from October 22nd, 2012, the day after my 30th birthday. My wife, Becca, and I have traveled all over the world, um, and we've taken some photos together in some amazing places that she has one on her nightstand. It's a, us with the Eiffel Tower behind us. And this photo, though, even though it's blurry and it's a stupid selfie, and it was taken by an escalator at the Von Mar department store in Omaha. It's my favorite photo of us. Why? Because this was the day that we found out that she no longer had cancer. Fifteen months before this photo was taken, um, I was in, I, I vividly remember this, I was in a, the hallway of a hotel. I, I worked for a band, and we were traveling, and, and I was in a hotel one night, and Becca called me, and we were catching up on the day, and we were just dating at the time, and she said, oh, I had this, this physical, and the doctor was poking around on my neck and checking out and doing some ultrasounds and stuff, and he noticed some things around my thyroid, um, and I was like, what's a thyroid, and is it in your neck? Um, that was also pretty funny. Um, <laughs> and she said, yeah, he, he, he saw some things that he was, he, like, seemed to concern him, but he said it was okay, and we were just going to go back and, in a few months, and they're going to measure things and check it out and, and see how it looks. And, um, I don't, it's hard to say, but I remember the sense of, of like, foreboding. Like, I, like, knew something was wrong. I just knew it, right? Thirteen months before this photo was taken, we uh, went to New York City and we got engaged. And so um, we started planning a wedding and we started getting excited about our, our lives together. Um, but then two months later, 11 months before this photo was taken, um, the doctor called and told Becca that she had thyroid cancer, papillary carcinoma, um, which one of the stupidest things I've ever heard a medical professional say was, if you're going to get cancer, this is the one you want to get. What? That's not funny. I'm not you. I'm saying to the doctor, like, no, they, you don't want to get cancer. 
Ten months before this photo was taken, Becca had surgery to have her thyroid removed, and eight months before this photo was taken, she had a really strange form of radiation that I'll tell you about sometime. The two months between the surgery and the radiation were really, really difficult. Um, she didn't go to work. It was tough, and we were in the midst of this planning a wedding. Six months before this photo was taken, Becca was filming a television show for TLC about brides. You guys might remember Say Yes to the Dress. There was a spinoff called Randy to the Rescue. Randy Finoli came to Nashville to help Becca find a new wedding dress, and they used the whole cancer story to really tease it out and make it really dramatic. And That was pretty fun, but it was still stressful. Five months before this photo was taken, we got married here in Nashville. It was a blast. But, you know, through that entire time, we had this thing hanging over us, which is they hadn't cleared her. They hadn't told us that she was cancer-free. We didn't know if we were going to have to do more. It was this weight, right? And, and similar to, to the, the, the comedy of, of Rhoda in this story, um, I, I mean, I, I think about the day before this show is my 30th birthday, and Becca flew up because the band I worked for was playing a show at a church in a small town in Iowa outside of Omaha where my parents live. So they all came up to the show, and it was one of those churches that's like really creepy. Like, it, it, it sounds good on the outside, but when we got inside, we are like, these people are really strange, you know? And, and the guys, this band that I worked for is called Cutlass. They ended up putting literally six feet tall pictures of my face all over the building as a birthday present, even like in the bathroom. And so all, all day long, these random Christian music fans were saying happy birthday to me, and I didn't know why. And then I got in the building, and there's there pictures of me. It was very strange. But in that season, there was so much waiting. There was so much fear. There was, there, there was, there were so many doctor's appointments, and there, there were so many tests and pokes and so many questions Lots of prayer. And then one day, a phone call. A clean bill of health. Miraculous and unexpected. God showing us who he really is in the midst of all that. That's the story you see in those tears and those smiles. Is God's grace showing up in an unexpected and powerful way. And I think it's that same grace that showed up for the followers of Jesus and Peter at this prison escape. It's, it's the grace and the power of God me, being activated and made, made alive in our lives. And one of my favorite passages of, of Scripture that speaks about this unexpected grace and the power of God is found at the conclusion of Ephesians chapter 3. Paul, Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians giving this really deep theological discourse on who Jesus is and, and, and what, what, what he's done means for us. And then the last three chapters of Ephesians is what our lives should look like in response to who Jesus is. And so um, the last three chapters are, are focused on how do we live in response to who Jesus is. And here's what we find is the hinge point between these two halves of the book. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's a benediction before he, he starts talking about how we live this thing. Yeah, and there, there's something so beautiful in those verses because connected to this idea of God's power, being able to do far more than we could ever ask, far more than we could imagine, 
is this peculiar little phrase, according to the power at work within us. And I think there's two incredible realities about that that are at work here in this verse. And one is that the power of God, the power of God that is displayed in miraculous prison escapes and physical healings is also at work within us. The God, the power of God to, to send an angel, to, to, to set chains free, to open iron gates, to make guards not be able to see, that same power is alive and at work in you and I as Christ followers. And number two, we are involved somehow in this miraculous and powerful work of God. It says, according to the power at work within us. He's doing, he's doing far more than we can ask, far more than we can imagine, and he's doing it through that same power that is at work within us. It's like we talked about last week in, in Acts chapter 9 with this guy Ananias, who God used very powerfully in the life of Saul. Ananias, after initially arguing with God, he chose to trust God and surrender his life to become a vessel of God's redemptive work in the life of someone else. To let that power be made, made, made practical through him. So it starts with trust and surrender. But, and, and we talked about that so much last week, and I hope that that's something that's been dwelling on you. What does it look like to trust God? What does it look like to surrender, to, to proclaim him with your life? But, but what else can we do? What else are we called to do when God's not calling on us to be so active. And I think he's always calling us, but what, what else are we supposed to do? And, and, and I just think there's a couple of hints here in this text. Let's look a little bit closer at Acts chapter 12. We're almost done. Stick with me. This is a remarkable story. Peter is the central figure. A big prison scape is a happening. There's so much happening. And I want you to notice, though, what the followers of Jesus are doing. They are mentioned twice, both times as a group. And look what they're doing. Acts chapter 12, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And then in verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. I don't think that this is something Luke includes by accident. When all hope seemed lost, when the odds were against them, when their movement was about to be stopped by King Herod, what were the people of God doing? They were praying. And I can tell you that in those months that led up to that photo that I just showed you, I've never prayed more in my entire life. Alone and with others. Let's go back to that, that summary uh, quote from N.T. Wright about this passage. As the first half of the book of Acts comes to a close, the believers in Jerusalem have been announcing Jesus as the rightful Messiah, King of the Jews. The present King of the Jews takes umbrage and tries to stop it, but... The grace of God and the prayers of the church have prevailed. What we're talking about in Acts chapter 12 is the miraculous, unexpected, redemptive grace of God at work. And we're also talking about a people who pray. I think uh, this, this, this posture of prayer from God's people can get lost in the grandeur of these stories, right? Not only here, but in other places in the New Testament, we, we see that in, in times of crisis, God's people are praying. Earnest prayer. They were devoted to prayer as a people who followed Jesus. I'm not suggesting that, that Peter's miraculous prison escape happened because they were praying, but the text doesn't say that it didn't happen that way. 
And I believe that it made an impact because the same power is at work within us. And the message of the Bible is clear. We are called to be a people of prayer, right? We are called to be a people who trust God, who surrender to him and to take things to him in prayer. And here's what I want you to know. Prayer is an act of surrender. When I think I, I can handle something, I'm less likely to pray about it. I think I got this. And prayer isn't part of my wavelength, right? I don't need to pray about this. I've got this. I've got it under control. But when I know it's out of my control, I hit my knees. It's, it's an act of surrender. I think all prayer is saying, I can't control this, and I'm recognizing this, and I'm giving it to God. I'm not telling God anything he doesn't know. I'm saying, Jesus, I surrender this to you. Whatever I'm praying about, I surrender this to you because I can't handle this on my own. And I think we need to be the kind of people who say, my life is surrendered to Jesus all the time. All the time. And that means that even when we think we've got it, we're a people of prayer. Or people who say, Jesus, I'm surrendering this to you. When we live surrendered, when we say, I'm going to surrender my life. I'm going to trust you, Jesus. I'm going to surrender my life. Sometimes he's going to call on us like he did Ananias in chapter 9. And we're going to get to get in on the action of what God's doing. But our default position, as we see in the church, when, when things are crazy, our default position is prayer. Our default position is surrender to Jesus. And what are we doing? We are anticipating, don't forget this, we are anticipating miraculous, unexpected, unexpected, redemptive grace from God. Because that's what we see from him time and time again through the scriptures. If we, if we see anything in the word, we see, we see a lot of things. One of the things we see is that time and time again, he shows up for us. His grace shows up for us, even when we don't think it possibly could. That's what God is about. He is up to something, Ephesians says, far beyond our wildest imaginations, and we get to be in on it through trust and through surrender and through lives of prayer. So my question to you this morning is simply to ask you this. What are you facing, like I did in our prayer time earlier? What are you facing? What seems insurmountable? What causes you to make, to think that, that hope is lost? Are the odds against you in, in the season of life that you're in right now? And my prayer for all of us is that whether we're in the midst of that, the, the deepness of it, the, the pain of it, or everything's okay right now, which I hope it is, that no matter where we're at, that we'll choose to surrender, that we will choose to live lives that are surrendered to Jesus, that we will choose to say, prayer is my attitude of surrender. I'm going to take everything to him and not rely on myself. I believe that if we do that, what we're going to find is that just like this story in Acts, time and time again, the grace of God will show up for us and sustain us and do powerful and unexpected things. I think that's who we're called to be. Let's pray. Fellowship on Broadway is a worship service at First Baptist Church in downtown Nashville, and we'd love for you to join us on Sundays.